Um, I've been to, to San Francisco once, and I can attest that seeing the Golden Gate Bridge in person um, is m- much more awesome um, than seeing it in a picture or even at Soren, okay, at Epcot, okay. It's, it's, an, it's an awesome achievement. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed in 1937 during the Great Depression at a staggering cost for that time of $35 million, which is about $500 million today, right in the middle of the Great Depression. And building stuff in that day was, was a risky endeavor. Um, the construction safety standards were, let's just how we say, not up to what we um, are, are accustomed to today. And so as America was being birthed and skyscrapers and buildings and bridges were popping up everywhere, it became the rule of thumb that you could count on one construction-related death for every million dollars spent on a project. That was the rule of thumb. $35 million, you could kind of see where the math is going. But they decided this time we're going to do something different. We're going to take unprecedented, for that time, safety measures. And so they erected this safety net under the Golden Gate Bridge. As they were building the road and constructing it, they, this extended from one end of the bay to the other, and the idea was that if you were up working on high wire of the stringing these wires up, and it was incredibly dangerous, that you could fall into this net. In fact, 19 men fell into that net during that construction period and were saved, and, and, and pardon my French, but they called those people, if you fell, members of the halfway to hell club, right? Okay, because... If you, were fell, if you fell past the net, it was almost certain death. 75 miles per hour hitting water from hundreds of feet up. You get the idea, and it, and it worked. But there was also another motivation that the contractors had beyond safety. They knew that if the men had the security of knowing that if they fell, they would fall into this net, they knew that this would encourage them to be more effective to work harder, to work faster, to be more efficient, shall we say, to even take more risks. Because they would know there was something undergirding their work. They could be much more bold and audacious. And in fact, we know that works. Even to this day, it's it's an engineering feat that we continue to marvel at. Now, I think this illustrates a very important spiritual truth for all of us. My experience about those who profess Christ in the church is not typically that people doubt whether God is real or grace is real or Jesus is real. You can see this on people's membership applications. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you that Jesus is the Son of God and died on the cross for sins? 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you that Jesus is the only way to heaven? 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you that people are saved by grace and grace alone through faith in Christ? 10. But how sure are you that this is true for you? That if you were to die tonight, that you would spend eternity in heaven? That's a whole different story. 8, 7, 6, oftentimes. See, I think... So many times, Christians marvel at this awesome structure that God is building that we've been talking about the last two weeks, the grace of God. And it's incredible, and it transforms, and and it empowers, and it changes lives. 
But yet, personally, so many of us still find ourselves full of fear and anxiety and worry and assurance. And we're not so much asking, God, is this true? We're saying, God, is it true for me? Is it true for me? Today, here is our goal from Ephesians chapter 1. If you are a Christian today, I want you to walk out of here. I believe God would have you walk out of here today with a renewed confidence that not only will God's grace save you, and not only will God's grace change you, but in fact, God's grace will keep you. God's grace will preserve you. God's grace will enable you to endure to the end. See, when, when we have a theological safety net, just like those men, we are empowered and emboldened in the grace of God in ways that we might not have thought possible. That's where we're going today. Ephesians 1, just four verses, verses 11 through 14. Let's read together. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord Jesus, we need your grace to better understand and apply your grace. Pray that you would do that for your people. Pray you would do it for me. Lord, we, we need the assurance of your grace each and every moment in our lives. Lord, open our eyes, empower us with your spirit, and apply this truth uh, to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you someone, let me ask you a question, are you someone who finds it difficult to say hard things to people? Isn't that a universal amen? Do you, are you someone who loves to say hard things to people? I don't want to be your friend. But anyway, guys, and I do. Father of the bride too. And let me just say, guess, there's something you need to know about me, okay, that most people here do know. I am the chick flick pastor, and if we are going to have a relationship, that's just something you're going to have to accept about me, okay? It's just, it's just who I am, okay? I'm born that way. Okay, Chick-fil-A, Chick Flick Pastor, so Father of the Bride too. Steve Martin playing George Banks, Diane Keaton playing Nina Banks, his wife, and George has gone off and sold their house without telling his wife, okay? Men, don't try this at home, right? Don't, don't do this. And this is not just any house, right? We know that from Father of the Bride 1, this is where, the, where Annie Banks McKenzie was married. We know that this is where George played basketball in the driveway with Annie Banks McKenzie while there was a perpetual soundtrack of My Girl playing in the background. Okay? That's this house. And he has gone and sold it and not told her. And he's figuring out how to tell her a hard thing. So they're having the dinner conversation. There's a bunch of relatives over. They're all doing this, that, and the other. And George just kind of bursts out really fast, under his breath, just trying to slide it in. Hey, guess what? I sold the house today. And a guy paid me an extra $15,000 to be out 
in 10 days, right? And, and, and so like, it's kind of like, did I hear that? Did I not hear that? What did, what did dad just say? What, what's going on? Because a lot of times we, we treat hard things or hard, what we think are hard truths that way. If we say, say them really fast, under our breath, very quickly, then, then, then it'll ease the pain. It'll ease the burden in which these things land upon us. And, and there's a great temptation, let me say, to do this in a passage like this. Because we come to verse 11, and, and we see the P word, predestined. If you read the rest of Ephesians 1, you also see words like chosen and election. And we just kind of feel like, if Pastor Paul, if we just kind of, kind of say that word really fast... <laughs> Okay. We can just kind of blow past that and get, get, get beyond that and to the, to the grace and the good stuff, then, then that'll be just so much better. It'll be less embarrassing, less conspicuous. But let me tell you, I think that would be a catastrophic spiritual mistake. Because I think when we do things like that, we undercut the very theological net that God has given us by His grace for you and I to be assured of our salvation and what God is doing in our lives. I think it's crucial that we understand what Paul's talking about here if you and I are going to be assured that not only that God's grace is true, but in fact that God's grace is true for me. So two points and only two. Ours and his. Our inheritance, his assurance. That's where we're going. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Paul says, for those of us who have professed faith in Christ, we have been given an inheritance, which basically means that God has written us into his last will and testament, so to speak. Verses 3 through 5 earlier in this chapter tell us about what that inheritance entails. Paul says some pretty incredible things. He says, Christian, in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. You've been adopted as his sons. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been made holy. Um, You have been uh, redeemed. You've been made holy and blameless. Now, let me ask you a question. In a human will, what activates that will? What has to happen? Someone must what? You can say it die, okay? It's no different in God's inheritance for us. There had to be a death, and that death was Jesus. And Paul says, when Jesus died, this inheritance became ours through faith. Now, that's what Paul has been spending most of this chapter on. But but here in in these verses, he makes an additional point. This is important to understand. This inheritance, for Oaks, was set aside for you long before you knew God. Before the foundations of the world, in fact, Paul says in verse 4, he predestined us. He chose us for this inheritance. Now, let me say this. Whatever you think about this idea, one thing that we can't get around is that this is what the Word of God says. Folks, we can't just blow past this. We need to camp out. We need to understand what Paul is talking about. There's a lot of words that Paul could have used, okay? He could have said, before the foundations of the world, God made it possible 
for you to get an inheritance. But it was unclear whether you would really get it. Okay? It was unclear whether you would be a good enough heir or not to earn that inheritance. That's not, that's not what he says. Okay? He says that before the foundation of the world, he predestined, which literally means to predetermine, to predetermine limits, to predetermine the boundaries. I love the way John Stott puts this. He says this, and this is just really, this is just rich. He says, God put us and Christ together in his mind. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's amazing. God didn't wait to see what kind of heir you would be. He did not forecast whether or not okay, you would be a good enough son or daughter to earn this inheritance. He, he, he didn't sort of wait around and see if you would be the good son or the good daughter. No, no. He made the decision from all eternity that you were going to be his in Christ. Now, some of you are in mourning, I know right now, because Downton Abbey is permanently off the air, okay? And all I can say is, thank God, okay? That, that show jumped the shark back in season three, okay? But in season one, when it was still a legitimate, a legitimate soap opera, okay, shall we say, we find out that the heir to the Grantham, Grantham estate has met his untimely demise. So by law and convoluted lineage through the male line, we come to find that some dude named Matthew, the distant cousin, is now the heir to the entire Grantham estate. And here's the deal. He didn't even know the family. They didn't even know him. What had he, do, what had he done to get included in this will? And the answer was obviously nothing. It was determined long before he was even born. Now, here is where the illustration and the analogy breaks down. Because if you've seen the show, you know that Matthew spends the next two seasons, okay, this is before he's tragically killed in a car accident because of a breakdown in contractual negotiations. That's a whole different story, okay? He spends the next two seasons doing everything he can to show that he's worthy of this inheritance, that, that, that he really is a good heir, that he really is a good son. Paul says, Christian, that's not the way it works with your inheritance and in my inheritance. See, you're not the one fighting to secure or earn your inheritance. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God is the one fighting to secure your inheritance. Look at the text. Verse back, back to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Now, listen to this. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is the thing that he's working all things towards? You. Your inheritance. My inheritance. My salvation. Now, this is just mind-blowing. Think, along, think about what Paul's saying here. The God who predetermined, elected, chose you to know him to receive this inheritance is now orchestrating the most minute details of your life, the most minute details of my life, to hold you into that salvation. 
to, to, to make sure you one day will receive that inheritance in full. Because when I was a little boy, every night I would lay in bed, and it was part of my ritual that I would ask Jesus Christ into my heart over and over and over again. Can anybody identify with this? Or is, is it just me that was incredibly neurotic as a kid? Anyway, the idea was if I could just confess all of my sins... Then, then I would be okay. And I was, I was just gripped with this constant fear of, am I in or am I out? Have I done enough? Have I done, was I sincere? Was I not sincere? Could, and, and kind of under, under it all was this anxiety of, can I, can I lose my salvation? Can I put myself outside of God's grace? That's a, that's a legitimate question. Apart from the sovereign hand of God, this is what John MacArthur says. This is great. He says, Christian, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Okay? Okay. If you could, you would. Okay? I, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, if, it, if, it, if it's up to me, if it's up to you, but ultimately that's not where assurance is grounded.